0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Am I coming through the speakers? I'm not coming through the speakers. All right. Well, we can try some more. Testing, testing. How are we doing now? I can't quite hear it yet. All right. All right. Hey, that's even better. Turn up just a little bit more. I'm going to get dominating today. Give me a little reverb. Drop it down to those settings that Jacob Williams uses. How about that? For whatever reason, the microphone just doesn't do the same thing for me when I make use of that handheld one. I'm not sure why. Well, let's uh, turn in our Bibles. The Gospel of Luke. Luke 11. Luke 11, we, uh, we wrapped up chapter 10 with Mary and Martha last week and we're ready now to get our first look at chapter 11. I don't know how far we'll get with this in, uh, okay, that might be a bit much, we can drop it down just a touch, how about that? Okay, thank you. As long as I know it's working, I, I, I'm psychological that way, as long as I know it's working, okay. This is our first session in Luke 11. We have a lesson on prayer in verses 1 through 13. And depending on how far we get with it today, I'm going to try to race through as much of it as I can. And uh, whatever we don't get to cover, we'll have to wait until our next time. And unfortunately, that won't be next week. In fact, that will be, uh, I don't even know when that's going to be. This is, uh, what month is this? This is November? Okay. See, the problem is is we're overlapping months, and I haven't seen a calendar in years. Um, this is November. Next week is Thanksgiving week on the 26th. I won't be in town for that. Yeah, we'll be gone on the 26th. We'll be gone on the, or the 29th, right? I don't even own a calendar, so Anyway. Just show up. If I'm here, I'll teach the Bible. I'm not going to be here for three weeks. I do know that, so I won't. I won't be here. This is my last Wednesday to be here, maybe ever. Okay, I'll come back. Um, December seventeenth. Okay. Okay. Well, whatever it is. Um. So the 29th. What is next Wednesday? 26th, okay, thank you. 26th, and then the 3rd, and then the 10th. Okay, something like that. Let's start with some prayer. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the privilege we have to assemble together and study And, Father, uh, all the rest of this stuff about trying to make plans is kind of stupid. We just live one day at a time. And if we have a day, then here we are, and we thank you for it. Father, thank you for um, the opportunity to study the Word of God, to learn things that we did not know yesterday, so that on this day we can give a greater glory to your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, as I was attempting to announce... um, we will not have class for next week, the week after, the week after that, three weeks in a row. That's the plan at this point, if it happens, if the Lord lets me take a vacation, that is. Um, so, we'll just you can, of course, still meet for prayer. Ladies can meet for prayer if you want, or if you don't. Uh, whatever you want to do, I won't be in town, so we'll figure that out at that point. Let's look at some scripture then, Luke chapter 11. It happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished. One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend. All right, well, we we'll get into these aspects here shortly we're going to break down this uh, unit into three main parts verses one through four are the sometimes called the lord's prayer we'll call that the disciples prayer it is a repeat by the way from the sermon on the mount in matthew five six and seven and we'll give you the parallel passages today so you can see the correlation between them then there's a parable in uh in verses five through eight that is unique to the Gospel of Luke. It's not found in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not found in the Gospel of Matthew. And then we have the uh, uh, ask and ye shall uh, receive, the ask, seek, and knock imperatives, uh, verses 9 through 13. So we'll handle it in, that, in those thirds, 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 13, and break down the, uh, the episode into three large sections. And so we'll just leave it for the moment with the the Lord's Prayer section here in 1 through 4. I'm going to give you a total of six points of study as we outline it. First of all, the parallels. This episode, this is point one in your notes, this episode seems to duplicate earlier teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your notes, you want to go all the way back to the Galilean Ministry, episode 17. Galilean Ministry, episode 17 is the Sermon on the Mount. We, uh, we've broken down our Harmony of the Gospels uh, into the different sections uh, based on their uh, overall geographic headings. And so the uh, Galilean ministry is the largest ministry, the largest segment of the life of Christ. If you go with the traditional three-and-a-half-year mode, then uh, the Galilean ministry was two years out of those three-and-a-half years. It was a significant portion of his ministry, two-and-a-half years even. And uh, we're now in the last Judean and Perean ministry ministry. Um, as we outline it so anyway this goes back a while uh, in parallel then Luke 11:2 through 4 is parallel to Matthew 6 9 through 13 Matthew 6 9 through 13 what's usually called the Lord's Prayer I call it the disciples prayer outline there are some differences between them we'll discuss those differences uh, for example. Uh, we have your kingdom come, but we do not have your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, also at the end, when it says, lead us not into temptation, we don't have the kingdom declaration. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory both now and forever. Amen. We'll, uh, we'll contrast these here in a moment. We'll do some flipping back and forth and show you the, the absences. Now, we don't have a problem with uh, duplicate teaching. In fact, it's rather a benefit that we have in the synoptic gospels that we have the different accounts in the different ways that we have them. It helps us to identify really the, the genuineness, the legitimacy of the gospel records. If they were all clones of each other, then that would be a mark of some kind of forgery, some kind of fraud, you know, like students turning in test papers and they're all worded exactly the same way. And, and the teacher says, all right, now who, who wrote this and who was copying from who, right? From whom? And so you start to realize that if if they're exact clone replicas, that something artificial or phony was going on. So that's not what we have in the synoptic approach with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are differences between them, and that is not uh, to say that, that uh, our text is flawed in any way. In fact, it's a benefit to our study of the text. To be honest with you, I expect Jesus Christ taught the doctrine of prayer probably 299 times in, in three and a half years. <laughs> it was a study that he taught over and over and over again. He lived by example. He demonstrated prayer. There was prayer where he prayed alone. There was prayer where he prayed with his disciples, his intimate disciples. And then there was prayer where um, he prayed with the large groups. Now, in this verse, I find it interesting. Jesus himself was praying. The disciple was not praying with him, but he himself was praying. And the disciple waited until after he had finished, after he had finished, which I find kind of interesting. We don't know who this disciple is, this unnamed disciple uh I, I suspect it was not one of the big big disciples. Well not one of the twelve, probably wasn't one of the seventy either. It was just a, a certain disciple. In fact we kinda of get the idea that he's rather new, uh that he was not around back when the Sermon on the Mount was first given, or other uh other teachings on prayer. Anyway, we'll highlight the uh the parallel on this shortly. Likewise, Luke point B then, sub point B so we've had main point one, sub point A now, the parallel between Luke eleven two through four is parallel to Matthew six nine through thirteen. And our sub point B, Luke eleven, nine through thirteen is parallel to Matthew seven, seven through eleven. The Father's faithful provision. If you ask him for a uh, fish, he's not going to give you a snake. If you ask him for a loaf of bread, he's not going to give you a stone. All right, and some of the terms are different between Matthew's uh, use and Luke's use. Luke, uh, Matthew does not mention the egg and scorpion uh, as he mentions the, the loaf and the stone. Anyway, that's just some of the. Slight differences. Chances are, this is a teaching the Lord gave any number of times. He probably gave this uh, a dozen times, a hundred times. Who knows how many times he taught this. In each village you go through, you, that's the idea of an itinerant ministry. When you're an itinerant speaker, uh, you, there's a lot of repetition in what you give. See, uh, Charles Wesley uh, spoke 40,000 times in his lifetime. And uh, you know. so you look at, at 3,362 and say, well, that's, that's not a whole lot. And yet, those are individual different messages to a congregation as opposed to you have one sermon you give a hundred times in a hundred different towns. You can, you can run your numbers up pretty good, can't you? <laughs> By doing it that way. Well, um with an itinerant speaking ministry you can have a message like the sermon on the mount you can give a hundred times in a hundred villages or uh, the messages on prayer here you can give a hundred times in a hundred villages and so forth and you can repeat it over and over and over again because your audience is different each time all right um, and I tease Cliff about teaching the book of James so much. Well, you know, he has the opportunity to do that. He can teach James here. He can take it down to Sweeney and teach. He can take it over to Horseshoe Bay and teach. He can take it to work and teach it. And as long as you get a new audience, you know, you can just keep teaching it over and over and over again. See, you know, I've heard stories of preachers that, you know, they had a repertoire of, of, you know, whatever they had. They had 400 sermons is all they had. And when they exhausted them, they had to, they had to you know, leave and go get another church, <laughs> basically. Uh, just change pulpits, change towns, and, and start all over again until you run out of material. Well, if you're doing something like that, repeating something over and over again, then your illustrations can change. And, and in Matthew where he says, you know, uh, the, the snake and the fish thing, or the loaf of bread and the in the rock, or an egg and a scorpion, for example. These are these are for instances, and you can add to the for instances. You can add, uh, make up some of your own. You know, if you're if you're going to ask for something, the Father's not going to give you something else. You know, as a counterfeit or as a danger, or as a as a cruel twisted joke. It's not what our father does. All right, so. Some of the differences there. We'll, we'll talk about some of those as well. Now, let's look at this certain disciple under point two. Before I do that, sub point C then. Luke's account does not contradict Matthew's Sermon on the Mount record, S O T M, Sermon on the Mount record. It's not a contradiction. You may encounter this. I don't know how many skeptics you encounter, how many uh, critics or Bible haters you encounter, but uh, through the years I've, I've, I, met different folks, and they've, they've been nitpickers, trying to pick nits and, and say, well, the Bible's just full of contradictions. It says this thing here, it says this thing there, you don't know what to believe, and so just throw the whole thing away. And that's their, that's their approach, it's the Pontius Pilate approach, where you just wash your hands and say, well, what is truth? You can't know the truth. And the reality is they hate God anyway, they hate the Bible, they don't want to admit that the Bible is true and, and so forth. And so they, they love to retreat. It's like an ostrich sticking his head in the sand. They can just retreat to the idea that the Bible's full of contradictions anyway. Why bother with it? So you may encounter this. And as you encounter it, take the time, if they'll give you the time, to say, oh, no, no, there's no contradictions in the Bible. There's not even one. There's zero contradictions in the Bible. Every verse is true. And if there are harmonizations that we need to reconcile one passage to another passage, then that's, that's fine. We can do that. We do that every time. There's no contradictions, but there are. Uh, you, you need to synthesize the different passages. You need to harmonize the different uh, areas that do appear to have uh, divergent details, and that's what we have here. So it, it does not contradict anything that Matthew records in the Sermon on the Mount, The Lord, uh, I I believe that what Matthew recorded is what the Lord spoke when he gave the Sermon on the Mount early in his Galilean ministry. And I believe what Luke records here is the content of what the Lord taught at this point in his Judean and Perean ministry. See, different context, different setting, different audience. Largely similar message, but with some differences. The Lord repeated numerous discourses to various groups of people, disciples, at different stages of his ministry. And even, you know, the same thing that would happen here. If we were to do, let's just say, 20 years from now, we decide to do a, a Life of Christ series all over again. And maybe there's some uh, some folks, some old-timers at that point, that would say, you know, I remember when you taught that 20 years ago, you know, and you took six years to teach it back then. <laughs> How long is it going to take to teach this time? See, well, it may be that the next time we teach... Uh, a, through the Bible series, or the next time we teach First Corinthians, or the next time we teach a book, um, there'll be some differences. Why? Because the audience is going to be going through some different testing at the moment. There's going to be different conditions on the ground. There's going to be some different realities in the congregation. There's going to be plus I'm going to be different in my growth, in my understanding, in my maturity. And so, um, anyway, this is this is what happens when teachers uh, go back and give a previous message a, a subsequent time. And I believe that's what we're seeing here. Now, we look at a certain disciple. We don't know his name. A certain disciple. While Jesus was at a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples, a certain disciple at a certain place at a certain time, says to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Now, we don't know his name. This might be Bob. I've been looking for Bob in the Bible now ever. it seems. And I uh, still haven't found one yet. I'm, I'm guessing it's one of these unnamed guys in here. And uh, yet we can pick up a some clue. First of all, he's familiar with the baptizer's ministry, but he was not part of it. He was familiar with it. He'd heard of it. And of course, by now, the baptizer's gone. He's dead. He's been de- decapitated. He's he's dead. Uh, we, we looked at that and at the event where it happened. And uh, so here's somebody who heard about it. He was not one of the disciples. He was not one of the ones. He doesn't say, teach, uh, you know, give us your teaching so I can compare it with what John gave me. Uh, just as John taught his disciples indicates that, that he wasn't one of them. The one doing the asking here was not a part of that group, which is another reason to believe that the one asking the question here was not one of the big Twelve. See, because most of them, the the at least the 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 uh, four—Peter, Andrew, James, and John—all four of them had been disciples of John the Baptist before they started following after Christ. So he was familiar with it, but not part of it. And this is—it's a—it's a opportunity. You know, it's a part of our heritage of who we are uh, in different things. I've I've uh, I've read different authors. I've read different. Uh, scholars, different pastors, faithful men over the years and uh but I'm so young I, I don't remember the time when, when those guys were still around, for example. And I you know, I talk about uh you know, reading Donald Gray Barnhouse, for example. And then someone comes along, like Warren or Ethel or somebody, and say, Well, I remember listening to him on the radio or I heard him teach live once in person like, Oh, you heard Doctor Barnhouse live? Really? What was he like? And that would be kinda of like here. Wow. Teach us some of the things they used to teach back in the day, right? Back when, back when Bible teachers were really Bible teachers, you know? Back when this country was hungry for Bible teaching. Tell me about what it was like back when, when, when there was such a hunger for doctrine that you could have six sessions a week in, uh, in evening Bible classes. What was that like? Tell, tell me about those days. And so we kind of get the idea here that this younger man is, uh, is uh, wanting for some of that teaching. We also have a clue that uh, this certain disciple was not present for the Sermon on the Mount. Because if he'd have been around at least two years, he would have heard that when Christ gave it back in the Galilean ministry. So he's one of the newer disciples, somebody that has been following Christ less than uh, about two years worth. See, I don't have my um, Harmony of the Gospels here, but you can look at the Harmony of the Gospel outline and see the date that we assign to the uh, to the Sermon on the Mount. If you're approaching um, the crucifixion in the spring of 33 and you have a three-and-a-half-year uh, time frame for the ministry of Jesus Christ, that means he started in the summer or fall of, of 29 A.D. And then you, you date the Galilean ministry usually around 31 A.D. in there somewhere. So anyway, whatever you do, there is also, I'm not convinced of it yet, but recently I've, been re-examining the scope of a four to five year ministry of Jesus Christ which doesn't alter a whole lot in terms it still keeps the crucifixion at 33 AD but it backs up the beginning when he came to be baptized to 28 or even 27 AD uh, to give four and a half to five years for his uh, for his ministry and that was something I looked at years ago and wasn't wasn't uh, dazzled by the, the study and kind of let it go and have held to the three-and-a-half-year traditional chronology all this time. But in the last couple of weeks, I've gone back and looked at it again and started to see some things I didn't see in it before. All right. Anyway, he's a younger disciple. He's a younger disciple. And this is what I want to encourage new believers when they come around here, or new believers in any local church, is we need to be sensitive to who the younger believers are that uh you know that that have questions or want teaching or need need discipleship they need older brothers to come alongside they need a lot of patience and the last thing we want to do is say well dummy where you been you should have been here 3 years ago when we taught such and such See, don't ask me that go get the mp3 off the website quit bugging me about it right Let's uh, understand that we might have, uh, we've got ministry opportunity and responsibility to a brand new believer who just got saved this morning. Well, then there you go. And if they ask something that, that uh, you know, ought to be pretty obvious, don't, uh, don't say, well, that's not a stupid question. That's pretty obvious. Say, well, great question. The Bible teaches about that. Let's look at that. And uh, we have opportunities uh, around here, certainly, all the time. All right, let's look at the prayer itself. The prayer given here is shorter than Matthew's recorded Sermon on the Mount prayer, but it conveys the same general pattern. The absences, the omissions are not such that they change the meaning of the, of the prayer, nor do they change the application that we would make. Keep in mind, this prayer was not given to the church. This prayer was given to Israel. all right. So if you're a believer in the church and you've got some kind of dream about creating a theocratic kingdom here on earth, <laughs> reevaluate. All right, because uh, so far as we're concerned, the kingdom of heaven is is just that, in heaven, and we are citizens of, of heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, we are a royal family, the bride of Christ, in terms of the kingdom of heaven. And uh, when the kingdom arrives on earth, it will be a Jewish kingdom with Jesus Christ seated on the, on the throne of David. All right. Now, here, I guess we can do a little bit of flipping back and forth. Or um, something else we can do is we can go ahead and just put it up on the, on the screen. And then... Uh, Uh, your windows, and there they are. Matthew on the left, Luke on the right. What we'll just leave the English for the time being? The, the Greek would reflect the same differences. You see how short it is in Luke compared to uh, Matthew? So say, Father, whereas Matthew has our Father who art in heaven. Okay, In Luke's account, it's just simply Father. Does that affect the definition? Does that affect the meaning? We're still praying to the same Father, right? Hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name, that's the same. Your kingdom come, but then in Matthew, it's your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, it's bringing into view the reality of heaven and how it's to be manifest here on the earth. I find it interesting as when the Sermon on the Mount was given, Jesus Christ was still proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not doing that at this point in the Gospel of Luke. Luke. He's no longer proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, he's preparing his disciples for the cross, for his departure. And so it's natural to say your kingdom come and yet leave it at that because it is going to be delayed a bit, won't it? It's going to be delayed uh, quite a bit, really, 2,000 years, if they could have had a context to understand that ahead of time. So the idea of your will be done on earth as it in heaven is interesting because uh, that gets omitted here from the Luke account. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. That's identical. Forgive us our debts versus our sins in Luke. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Language is a little bit different, but it still conveys the same thought. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And uh, lead us not into temptation. And that's where Luke stops. The idea of deliver us from evil is omitted. And here is Jesus Christ. Now, I find that to be striking as well. That Jesus Christ in his own prayer life is no longer uttering, deliver me from evil. Because the truth is, what's going to happen in less than six months? He will be delivered into evil into the hand of the evil one. He's going to be hung on the cross. He is going to, he who knows no sin will become sin on our behalf. Um, so it's interesting. In every case where we see the, um, the editing out, we see the, short, the removal of certain phrases and so forth, every last one of them, I think, comes in the recognition that the cross is approaching. In every single case. And then as far as the rest of this, uh, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's even in Matthew. There's a text matter there. And um, we'll save that for some of our text criticism exercises. All right. Conveys the same general pattern. Here's the pattern. It starts with adoration before the Heavenly Father. Adoration before the Heavenly Father. When you're teaching a baby believer how to pray, this... This Disciples Prayer, by the way, don't call it the Lord's Prayer, that's John 17. The Disciples Prayer. This is a formula. It's a pattern. And it's a way to teach a brand new believer how to pray. It's a, it's a way you give them a structure, you give them an outline, you give them a, a pattern to follow, and they can, they can learn by these, these rote prayers, these ritual prayers. Now, they should also grow beyond that. You ought to be able to grow to the point where you express in your own priesthood, your own worship, your own expressions, your own uh, free expression of devotion and, and intimacy with the Father. But you got to start somewhere. and This is a good place to start. Just give them a pattern. And start in that pattern with the principle of adoration. Father, or Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Celebrate who he is. Celebrate the fact that we have the ability to pray. We have, God has gifted us, blessed us, equipped us with the um, ability, the power in our living human spirit to pray. Remember, prayer is a spirit function, not a soul function. Uh, we, you, you think that your soul is engaged, and it is. It's engaged so far as your, your mentality is functioning and your emotions are, are functioning. Uh, If your mentality is out of kilter, your prayers will reflect that. If your emotions are out of whack, your prayers may reflect that too. So the soul does touch on your prayers, but ultimately prayer is a spirit function, not a soul function. And we want to start with adoration before the Heavenly Father, teaching a brand new believer that he has a father. Maybe he never had an earthly father that he loved or an earthly father that he respected or an earthly father that had any kind of approachability. Right. But here's a father that you can approach any time, day or night, with any problem, with any struggle. And he always has time for you. He never says, go away, come back. I'm busy now. Um, Make an appointment with my secretary. I'll I'll handle your problem a week from next Friday. Okay, but dad, I got a question now. Okay, (laughs) access at any time. And we start with the adoration, thankful for who he is, for what he's done, for why we're here. And um, so many of the prayer patterns start off with that. Not just, uh, we don't want to just jump into the gimme, gimme, gimme prayers. We start with the adoration. Second feature is the anticipation of his coming kingdom. Anticipation of his coming kingdom. I think... uh we can relate that in our dispensation to uh, uh, an acknowledgment of his plan of the ages. The anticipation of the rapture of the church. You know, if we take this across from being the Jewish prayer that it is to a church age prayer that we can, we can uh, glean, uh, the anticipation is acknowledging the plan of God as it's unfolding. And presently in the church age, the next imminent event is not... The uh, unveiling of the kingdom on earth. It is actually the snatching out of the bride to uh, to glory. And so, as we're adoring the Father, we're mindful that this day is a grace gift. It may be our last day here on this earth. That at any moment we're waiting to hear the trumpet. At any moment, we know we may appear at the judgment seat to give an account. And so we do that. Thirdly, the ascent to His will. Ascent to His will. The ascent to his will. And even though it's, the Luke account leaves out the your will be done, uh, it's still contained in, implicitly, it's still contained in your kingdom come. It still is the aspect that as his kingdom is coming, it's his will that's being realized step by step between Alpha and Omega. The ascent to his will as the third step. Um, And you'll notice in all of these, we haven't even gotten around to asking for anything yet, have we? (laughs) Right? Have we asked for our daily bread yet? Have we asked for uh, whatever it is we're asking for? You know, all too often, the approach in prayer is just the gimme, gimme, gimme's. And we're going to talk about that because that's the middle portion of this section. This is going to the neighbor and knocking on the door at midnight and wanting three loaves of bread. Okay? Which is the adolescent approach to prayer. And we'll talk about that. The first portion here where you learn by rote is the baby prayer. The middle part where you're kind of obnoxious and stupid and, and selfish and knocking on the door at midnight. That's the adolescent prayer. And then the third part where you truly know how to ask, how to seek, and how to knock. Those are the mature prayers of a fellow worker with God the Father for the glory of Jesus Christ. So there's a progression in this chapter and if I don't get to it by the top of this hour and you have to wait three weeks for the next installment uh, you'll have at least something to chew on assent to his will recognizing that um, the fact that I'm even in prayer means that it's his will that needs to be accomplished because the father desires that I go to him in prayer fourthly uh, acceptance of his daily provision acceptance of his daily provision our daily bread it's what we need it's what we need. Question is, is that earthly food there? I asked you that in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So when you go to the Father and say, give us this day our daily bread, which bread is in view? Is it the earthly? Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. And the truth is, whether you eat or not on a given day is not as important as whether you are occupied with the Word of God, the living bread, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you taking in the Word of God today? Acceptance of His daily provision, and then finally, awareness of His forgiveness. Awareness of His forgiveness, like what Pastor Miller was saying. Don't get over your salvation awareness of forgiveness, awareness of your position in Christ, awareness of the grace in which you stand. You are what you are by the grace of God. You do what you do by the grace of God. And so these elements can be incorporated into a uh, pattern for prayer. Now, this is what we have in Matthew. This is what gets restated in Luke. And as we said in Matthew, this first part comes in Matthew 6, and then the last part when we get into the asking, seeking, and knocking uh, and the fact that you know we're evil parents, but God's a good parent and He gives us good things, uh, that's in Matthew 7, and there's a gap in between there in Matthew, in the two sections of Matthew. All right. In fact, just hold your finger here. Let's look over at Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So you can kind of get an idea for the overall structure on the sermon on that's a lengthy lengthy discourse and i think it was given in a in a conference format more so than a single lesson <laughs> all right i'm sure they had breaks for uh you know meals and hitting the coffee pot and other things of course the lord drank coffee you didn't know that all right so in Matthew chapter six, you got verses nine through thirteen in the uh, pray then in this way, and then beyond, and then the the forgiveness aspect in verses fourteen and fifteen. But then it goes on and it talks about fasting and talks about prayer and it, uh, the other applications here to not be hypocritical. It has to it has to continue in where the chapter started, where it says beware of practicing your righteousness before men. And that includes prayer, but it also includes fasting. It also includes um, giving, and so forth. I understand that uh, Austin Bible Church in the last couple of weeks received uh, about $100,000 from multiple sources. And I don't know who the sources are. I don't know where they came from. I don't know the first bit. I don't want to know. I'm glad I don't know. All right. And that's uh, that's the privilege and opportunity where uh, the father who sees in secret can repay Where if uh, the the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing and vice versa, then it's uh, Jesus Christ gets all the glory. All I get to do as a pastor is uh, hear reports like that and say, Wow, thank you, Father. (laughs) Amazing. See, what a a God of grace. Absolute God of grace. Then uh, still in Matthew 6, he starts to teach them aspects about anxiety, about seeking first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness, and then not, about not, and you get into chapter 7, and we don't want to be judging, and um, we uh, don't want to throw pearls before swine. Whole lot of teaching in here. Then you finally, in 7 7, get to ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, and knock. So that's the structure there. Jesus gave a whole realm of teaching in that Sermon on the Mount. Now in chapter 11 of Luke, come back to chapter 11 of Luke. And we see something interesting in what the Lord's doing here. He's taking the prayer elements out of the Sermon on the Mount. Right? He's taking the, the rote prayer from chapter from Matthew six, and he's taking the ask, seek, and knock teaching from Matthew chapter seven. And he's taking those two elements out of the Galilean ministry. He's now bringing them back for the Perean ministry, Last Judean and Perean ministry, and he's reshaping them for this message. And as he's reshaping them for this message, he says, you know what? This is the beginning and the end of a prayer development. I need to plug it in with something here in the middle. And what he plugs in in the middle is this parable about the neighbor and the midnight knocking. All right. The, uh, you know, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and this parable from five through eight is what he talks in between part one and part three of this three part uh, development on prayer. And when he does this, this is what he's doing he's crafting this into a baby, adolescent and mature approach to our prayer life. case I don't get to it by the end of the hour. Point six. Can I give you point six when I haven't given you three, four, and five yet? Yeah, I guess I can. Baby prayers are formulaic. Adolescent prayers are impudent. Mature prayers are fervent and effectual. And that's your threefold structure of verses one through thirteen. Baby prayers are formulaic the Lord's Prayer pattern, using a formula, using a, a by-rote instruction manual for prayer. And it may be, I mean, you get a brand new believer and basically all he can handle is table grace, three meals a day, and and now I lay me down to sleep, <laughs> right, when he goes to bed at night. And then, uh, you know, then hopefully he'll start to learn some adolescent principles of prayer and you'll learn how to be obnoxious. Now, I hope I say this the right way, and I hope as we teach it, it comes across the right way. Um, adolescents are obnoxious. That's what they are. That's the stage of growth. It's the stage that's no longer a child, but not yet an adult, although they think they're an adult. Okay? And I'll have a lot of fun with this, not only today, but when we come back in three weeks. I've got two adolescents here today right now. Actually, it's kind of fun. But adolescents are obnoxious. And even the ancient Greeks understood that when they invented the term sophomore. The wise moron. Okay? Because they think they're wise and they're fools. Well, the amazing thing, not only here, but over in Luke 18 when we're taught about persistence with the unrighteous judge and the widow and the the nagging widow at the door to the unrighteous judge. In both of these parables, Jesus Christ is teaching them as positive examples for our application. In other words, this neighbor here is impudent. He is shameless. He is thoughtless. He is selfish. He is um, crude. And guess what? So are we. (laughs) So are we. And that's all right. Because we're going to grow through that. And we're going to develop a prayer life during that time and we'll be in in the uh, completion of this developed prayer life. We're going to grow beyond that and we're going to get to the mature prayer life of ask, seek and knock. And the knocking is, goes from impudent to um, to proper when we understand it, when we develop it out. So That's what we have coming up. OK, let me back up then to point three. The same general pattern. You got your five-part pattern to six-part pattern. I'm sorry. I left off before I gave you point F. Abstinence from evil. Abstinence from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Matthew has both phrases. Luke has simply the lead us not into temptation phrase. But when you're aware of God's forgiveness, you want to live a life day by day that's the, the life uh, not in the realm of temptation, the life that's in the realm of, of, uh, of glory, that you're walking to please the Lord. You don't want to walk in the realms of temptation. Anyway, so there's your there's your pattern. That's what we gave you in Sermon on the Mount. If you want more teaching on it, um, the MP3 is, uh, is available. Just sitting there minding its own business. Now... The, the, what sets this passage apart, what, what sets Luke 11 apart from anything we've ever studied before is this parable in 5 through 8. The parable in 5 through 8. And uh, goodness, can we teach this in 17 minutes? Well, maybe. We'll give it a shot. How's that sound? All right disciple wants to know how to pray. Well, when you pray, say his following. Father, and he gives them the, the baby prayers of the, of the disciples' prayer. we repeated it from the teaching he'd given in the Sermon on the Mount. Probably gave it many, many times to brand new believers every time he came across them. See, I don't know that uh, the typical believer in the Old Testament had a developed prayer life. Typical believer in the Old Testament would have been very reliant upon the uh, intercessory priesthood that they had been given you know, go to the temple, bring a goat, uh, ask uh, ask the priest or the Levite there to offer a sacrifice, to offer a prayer, to intercede and so forth. I don't know that personal prayers on the part of an Old Testament saint were really as developed as uh, as they might have been otherwise. Although you read Psalm 119, you read David, you, you, you know, there were some believers that had powerful prayer lives. Anyway, it's hard to say. So the Lord gives them this, and then he said to him, then he said to them, and, you know, it's almost like he's He's asking, he's, you know, picture this now. Jesus, his disciples, the old-timers, the new guys and the newbies, and um, this, this kid comes up and says, can you teach us how to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples? And you can almost see, right, Peter and James, and they just roll their eyes. Oh, here we go again. This newbie in his question, and man, you know. And so here's the Lord, okay, our Father in heaven, hallowed be the name, okay, I don't know. And uh, the Lord said, lead us not into temptation. The disciples are like, yeah, 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 okay, got that, got that. And then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend. And then all of a sudden, Peter and James and, oh, wait a minute. This is something different. (laughs) Hmm, there's something new. What is this? Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight And says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. (laughs) How long does he stay your friend? (laughs) And is he really your friend anyway? I think when you glance at it in verse 8, you kind of find out that he's not really your friend. You're his friend, but he's not your friend. And maybe because of this midnight knocking or something, you wonder, okay, you know, you you have people that you you can call at any time, day or night. And there's other people that you're not as comfortable calling them at certain times. You say, well, better wait till morning. All right. Let's just read through it and then we'll come back and get our comments. Um, goes to at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For, four. here's the explanation, a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. right? Explain to me why that's my problem. That that seems to be your problem. And from inside, he answers, that's the friend, answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. In other words, go away. Come back tomorrow. And uh, I think this immediate answer of do not bother me Is interesting because James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally or generously. And what's the other phrase without reproach, without reproach. In other words, without saying, do not bother me. (laughs) Stop bothering me. So we know this is not how the father answers prayer. And yet this is given to us as a parable teaching how to pray. I find it interesting. All right, the door has already been shut. Pretty vivid, perfect voice uh, description of that. Uh, I and my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. There's even uh, there's some readings on uh, the, the nature of these one-room uh, houses, these single-room residences, dwellings, and so forth, and what the aspect is when you bar the door for the night and you put the bar across the door and, lay- and the father lays out the, uh, the sleeping mats and the children are actually right there by the door uh, and the parents are at the back by the back wall and so forth. And so if this guy's going to go to the door, what's he got to do? He's got to step over the children and he's got to, you know, remove the thing and open it up. And Plus, you wonder with all the shouting back and forth that the kids aren't awake by now anyway, right? If they're anything like my kids, they woke up half hour before I did anyway, so... We'll figure it out. All right. What are some of these elements here? Some principles we want to glean out of this. First of all, prayer is not based on rapport friendship. Prayer is not based on rapport friendship. There's a contrast. And we're told in verse 8, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend. Friendship is not the basis for this provision. That's clear in verse 8. He will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, and that's the word we've got to work with, that's the word that takes some time. And I think persistence is a bad approach. It's his um, shamelessness. His shamelessness. He will get up and give him as much as he needs. That's the application. Prayer is not based on rapport, friendship. I think uh, there's elements of this. When we talk about the distinctions between our relationship and our fellowship, the rapport, love that we can have with the father, the father can have with us, our fellowship is with the father and with his son. Um, We should have that. We should develop that. And yet when that rapport is broken, when that fellowship is lost, um, does that in itself stop our access to the throne of grace? Can we not go to him and confess anything that needs to be confessed and have that fellowship restored? You know, in terms of uh, fellowship and friendship and I, I'm going to stop using the term fellowship here because quinonia is not in this text, but philos is the rapport love, the friendship love that, that occurs, the philos love that gets developed. That's a two-way street. Philos takes nurturing. Philos takes interaction, takes back and forth, takes, uh, does take into account the merit of the object, takes into account the reciprocity of the intimacy of the friendship and so forth. That's what's in view here with uh, time and time again. Friend, friend, friend. And then uh, another aspect. Let's look at it. Secondly, what is it based on? It's not based because he's his friend. It's obtained through his shamelessness. His Anaidea A-N-A-I-D-E-I-A. Anideia. Successful requisition is obtained through shamelessness. My favorite rendering of the term shamelessness if you have a uh, the derby translation or the uh, contemporary english version or the good news translation they all use shamelessness king james used importunity which i kind of like importunity except we don't speak elizabethan english anymore as a general rule maybe we can maybe we can start a trend if we all, all of us consistently just start speaking Elizabethan towards one another. We'll use dost and thou and thee and things like that. You know, trends can come back, right? I think bell-bottom jeans, you know, we're on the verge of coming back. And other discos, maybe making a... I don't know that Elizabethan English will ever find a resurgency in daily use, but... Importunity is a nice way to render this. The English Standard Version has impudence, impudence, boldness, if you have an NIV. And, and, and this is where I think in um, some of these, like the NIV, New American Standard, New King James, uh, they took the idea of shameless and they, they took it a step beyond the shamelessness to communicate the persistence, the boldness or persistence. And it's unfortunate because there really is no place for it unless they're trying to correlate this with the widow and the unrighteous judge of Luke 18. Because there's another prayer parable that he gives in Luke 18 with a widow and an unrighteous judge. And she was bothering him, same as the man here was bothered. And But in that passage in 18.5, he says... Uh, Because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal uh, protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Now, there we find persistence. And we're also told in verse 1 that they ought to pray at all times and not lose heart. So this is a parable that's designed to teach praying without ceasing. It's designed to teach persistence. And in Luke 18, the principle is persistence. And I think the vocabulary supports persistence. But in Luke uh, 11... Jesus is not teaching persistence, he's teaching prayer itself. Prayer in the first place. And in that, he's giving this example of impudence, this example of anaideia, the Greek word A-N-A-I, anaideia, number 335, anaideia. Actually, accent is on the second syllable, anaideia, number 335. And uh, Edo, Adon, you've got verbs of understanding, verbs of perception, verbs of conscience. And uh, this is negated with the alpha privative on here, the, the negation, basically without shame, without conscience, without any, any uh, embarrassment, without any social sense of anything. And see, this is, this may be a hard concept to teach to 21st century Americans who, for the most part now, for going on 40 years, um, have nothing left to be ashamed about. As a society and as a culture, our culture has done everything since about 1962 or thereabouts to remove any need for shame and anymore, the last things that are left to be ashamed about anymore, as far as our culture is concerned, you don't have to be ashamed about having a baby out of wedlock. That's not to be ashamed anymore. That's, that's just to be celebrated. That's just fine. Um, nothing shameful about living together outside of marriage. Nothing, that's not wrong. Nothing shameful there. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a ton of things that used to be shameful. Used to be um, defaulting on a debt, going bankrupt, the stigma and the social. uh, Now, oh no, it's just normal. You know, in fact, now we got billionaire uh, corporations going to the government, uh, begging for the for the handouts and whatever else. Is there any shame left? I think the only thing left now is if you are a Christian, you need to hang your head. And shame on you for those close-minded, narrow, primitive, dis, uh, discriminating, intolerant views. Shame on you. <laughs> the only thing our culture has, has left to be ashamed of is that you still are a Christian, hold, hold true to the Bible. Shame on you. Well, in the ancient world, and in many other parts of the world today, Shame is a big deal. Honor is a big deal. As we have uh, ministry in the Philippines, for example, in the, in the Orient, the Far East, honor is huge. And to bring dishonor or shame on a family or on a name still in that part of the world anyway is, is massive. To the Romans, to the Greeks in the ancient world, your honor was everything. There was an aspect about... Um, Certain aspects. I mean, you could do... (laughs) The Romans could participate in certain nefarious things so long as it wasn't publicly known, right? You know, assassination of your enemy, that's fine. Just don't get caught. (laughs) Different aspects. Anyway, uh, I, I prefer the rendering of shamelessness because of his shamelessness. Even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend... Yet because of his shamelessness, because of his anidea, anidea, he will get up, not only get up, but give him as much as he needs. The verbs there are different. The get up that he won't do is different from the get up that he does do. And uh, that's an interesting thing there as well. Now, when we come back, we're going to learn about shameless impudence. Because this is given as a parable to teach... What we're doing when we go to our Father in prayer, shameless impudence. We're knocking on a door when we go to the Father and pray. And do we have any right to anything? Does this man have any right to three loaves of bread out of his neighbor's house? Any right to does he have any right to one loaf of bread? Does he have any right to disturb his neighbor's sleep? When it comes right down to it, the need is this person's need. It's not the neighbor's need. And the idea when you go to the Father in prayer, the need is entirely yours. <laughs> For whatever it is, whatever you need. And it and could be legitimate needs, that's fine you are still knocking on a door with a need, and the one inside doesn't have the need you have. And um, is it shameless? <laughs> do we deserve anything that we're asking for? Not at all. Um, in fact, is it? are we rather... Uh, sometimes do we find ourselves in prayer requesting things that... Uh, Well, maybe if we'd have been a little bit uh, uh, smarter about it, uh, we wouldn't find ourselves in this spot. (laughs) Right? Why does this guy not have his own bread in his own house for when his friend showed up on his trip? You know, he he could have had some better planning, should have had some better planning. And his promise of repayment, you know, I'll I'll make it up to you, I'll pay you back. (laughs) Well, how are you going to pay me back? You don't have bread now. Okay? There is an aspect of shameless impudence. And as we describe it, when we come back, we'll describe it. and we'll describe it in, in in a shameless way because that's what it is. But when we're done describing how shameless it is, at the end of the day, remember that this is a pattern for us to learn from. These are the adolescent prayers. We go from the baby prayers of praying by rote to the adolescent prayers of pretty thoughtless, uh, shameless, uh, selfish, demanding I, mean, I want it right here right now. I don't care if it's midnight. I can't wait till tomorrow, right? Like when your teenager tells you, "Oh yeah, by the way, uh, tomorrow morning um, this assignment is due. When, when was it assigned? I oh, three months ago, but you know it's due tomorrow morning, and I need to finish this report. All right. Well, because in an adolescent way of thinking, if your universe resolves, revolves around you, then it revolves around you right now. (laughs) It doesn't matter if it's midnight. This won't wait. I'm important and I want it now. All right. So we're going to break it down. In fact, we got 10 principles we're going to glean out of this neighbor and uh, the impudent prayer. So we'll get some positive things when we come back. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word, for the privilege we have to assemble together. We thank you for uh, the opportunity we're going to have to take a little bit of time away and ask uh, if that is your will, that you would make provision for it. If not, then uh, whatever time is allowed, we will give you thanksgiving and praise for. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.